You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We start with breaking developments in connection with the now wrapped Ibrahim Ali murder trial. Ali was convicted on Friday of first-degree murder in the death of a young girl whose body was found in Burnaby Central Park. And tonight, confirmation a police investigation has been launched into allegations a gun was brought into the courtroom on that day. Rumina Dea joins us with more on this alarming development. Rumina. Sophie, late this afternoon, in a sworn affidavit filed in BC Supreme Court, Ibrahim Ali's lawyer, the lead lawyer, Kevin McCullough, said that Victoria Police asked him and his wife to come into the police station yesterday. That was sometime yesterday afternoon. Now, McCullough says that it was police who advised him that someone connected to the family of the deceased teen had been in possession of a Glock gun in the courtroom on Friday and had a, quote, intention to kill. That was the day, as you mentioned, that Ali was found guilty of first-degree murder in connection to the body of the girl who was found partially nude in Burnaby Central Park in July of 2017. Now, McCullough had asked Justice Lance Bernard to consider moving the proceedings to a more secure courtroom because he had received a, quote, litany of death threats. The judge said he did not know if another courtroom was available and the proceedings did not move to another courtroom on that day. Now, a request for a metal detector outside of the courtroom was also never implemented, said McCullough in the affidavit. Now, that document goes on to state that McCullough and co-counsel Ben Linsky have been receiving constant threats since the death of Dr. Tracy Pickett. Now, if you recall, this is the sexual, sexual ex assault expert for the Crown. She was in the middle of cross-examination when she was found dead near her home back in September. Vancouver police at the time has said, had said that no foul play was suspected. Now, the jury and the public still in the dark, however, about the circumstances surrounding her death. Now, we know that late today, defense also filed a notice of appeal. At this point, they are asking for a new trial on 25 separate grounds. Now, for two days now, we have been trying to get a hold of Victoria Police to get a comment on these very serious allegations, and we've received no response. The VPD contacting us late this afternoon to tell us that they have heard about the allegation that a gun was brought into the courtroom on Friday, and they are currently involved in an investigation. No other details provided. Back to you. All right. Quite the development. Romina, thank you for that. Focus is back on the horrors of B.C. serial killer Robert Picton after RCMP requested the ability to dispose of the 14,000 exhibits gathered during the course of their investigation. As Grace Key reports, families of victims are worried it could destroy evidence in cases of missing women that are still unsolved. I don't understand why he's, he and... Others can't be charged with her case. <laughs> this has been so traumatizing for me. Families of missing and murdered women are making an emotional plea to preserve all exhibits related to the Robert Picton case. And getting rid of that evidence destroys all chances we have 
for future cases and cold cases in Canada. Victims, loved ones and 40 other organizations are trying to stop RCMP court applications to dispose of some 14,000 exhibits held by police. This latest step by the RCMP to seek disposal of all exhibits, a mere 20 years after the investigation on the farm began, sends the message that the missing and murdered women's cases are closed, despite the majority of them being unsolved. In 2007, Picton was found guilty of second-degree murder in the death of six women. Charges involving 20 others were stayed after Picton was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. But advocacy groups say more suspects are out there. Robert Picton was not alone in these crimes. Despite what the RCMP may say about this being a complete investigation, it is not. It is of the utmost importance that we preserve this evidence so that we can have what we have always asked for, a complete, thorough, adequate investigation. RCMP explains this is a process required by law. Property must be returned to the rightful owners or for disposal if not claimed. This involves cases that are no longer active. It is important to understand that all evidence is being preserved. To put it simply, the RCMP is not authorized to retain property indefinitely and is making application to the court for disposition of that property. RCMP filed the initial application in December 2020. The group says there are a total of five applications. The court process is ongoing. 74-year-old Picton will be eligible to apply for day parole in February of next year. Grace Key, Global News. A sexual assault trial is underway in B.C. Supreme Court for a man accused of having non-consensual sex with a teenager he met online. As Kristen Robinson reports, the Crown began its case with emotional testimony from the alleged victim. And a warning, the details are disturbing. 27-year-old Alexander Romero Arata has pleaded not guilty to one count of sexual assault. The Crown alleges he had non-consensual intercourse at a Vancouver hotel two years ago with a 16-year-old he met online. The alleged victim, now 18, was the Crown's first witness. Testifying by video, she told the court she was struggling with mental health and addiction issues in November 2021 and using an app to make friends when she came across a Yubo profile for Alex, who was 17 years old and looking for sugar babies. She understood it was nothing sexual. Someone who would take you shopping, buy you things and not really expect much in return except friendship, she testified. Days later, the witness took the Canada line to Vancouver to meet the accused, who the Crown says told her he was 20 years old. The alleged victim says he picked her up and drove to Stanley Park, where they both drank alcohol, before he grabbed her and began kissing and touching her. They left the park for downtown, where the accused purchased a vape pen and a necklace for her. After buying her McDonald's, the accused got a room at the Hyatt on Burrard, where the pair ended up. The witness told the court the accused began kissing and touching her again, and eventually got her to lay down on the bed. He began slapping my face and my breasts very hard. He began to have intercourse with me while I remained silent the entire time. The witness testified the accused continued to slap her and also choked her. At one point she said she tried to sit up, but he grabbed my hair and pulled me back down onto the bed. The alleged victim said she eventually left the hotel room and had bruising on her breasts, neck and cheeks and blood in her underwear even though she wasn't menstruating when she went to hospital hours later. When asked by Crown why she didn't take photos of these injuries, she told the court, I couldn't look at myself. 
The jury trial is expected to last five days with the alleged victim's father and the BC Women's Hospital doctor who examined the alleged victim also set to testify for the Crown. Kristen Robinson, Global News. A BC man has been arrested in connection with a shooting on the outskirts of Toronto. 23-year-old Tanmanjot Gill from Abbotsford was arrested shortly after the shooting early Saturday morning. Police allege two suspects went to a business in Brampton where one of them fired multiple rounds. Police seized two firearms, a loaded magazine and ammunition. Gill has been charged with discharging a firearm in a reckless manner and possession of stolen property. Police are still looking for the second suspect. Two B.C. gangsters have been sentenced for the murder of a rival who was gunned down in a crowded high-end Vancouver hotel. But as Angela Jung reports, one of them won't be going to prison because he's still on the loose. In January 2012, Sandeep Dure walks into the Sheraton Wall Centre and finds a seat in the lounge by the window. Caught on surveillance, Rabi Al-Khalil and an associates are seen checking out the hotel before heading into the lounge. Then a gunman walks through the busy lobby, heading straight for Dure. Panic ensues. The lobby quickly clears out. The gunman flees. In November of that year, Sukhvir Dock was gunned down in a brazen shooting in a Burnaby hotel. Six years later, in 2018, Al-Khalil and Larry Amaro were charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder for the deaths of Dure and Doc. The court heard the killings were revenge for the 2011 murder of rival gang member Jonathan Bacon. During the sentencing hearing, Justice Miriam Maisonville said, acts of personal vengeance carried out in busy public places pose an enormous threat to the general public. The risk that innocent bystanders could have been hurt or killed was immeasurable. I heard about a dozen shots when I was working. Amaro was given an 18-year sentence for conspiracy to commit the murders of Dury and Doc. With credit for time served, he will remain behind bars for nine more years. As for co-conspirator Al-Khalil, he escaped from the North Fraser Pretrial Center in Port Coquitlam last year. His accomplices, dressed up as contractors, used a plasma torch to cut through the jail, allowing him to escape. $250,000 reward for any information leading to his arrest. His sentencing was delivered in absentia. Akhalil was given a life sentence with no chance of parole for killing Dure. He was also given 20 years for the death of Doc. As for the alleged gunman, another trial is set to begin. Angela Jung, Global News. With holiday party season in high gear now, BC's top doctor is urging everyone to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated against COVID and the flu. That's right. As Richard Zussman reports, BC leads the country when it comes to vaccinations, but those numbers are waning and plenty of both COVID and flu vaccine is still available. It's a holiday delivery, not arriving by sleigh. We're also seeing that more people are, are seeking health care providers for respiratory symptoms in the last several weeks. <coughs> the province well into respiratory illness season. Cases of both the flu and RSV up across BC, but not as prevalent as a year ago. Still, health officials worried 
especially about the H1N1 strain of influenza. H1N1 can cause more severe illness in younger people, so we need to be aware of that. Although BC is leading the country in both flu and COVID shots administered, vaccine numbers waning. 1,443,752 flu shots so far doled out, with 1,289,849 COVID shots. With more than 2 million doses of each, there's still a lot available at pharmacies. There are in some health authorities 90% uh, availability of appointments um, to get vaccinated here in British Columbia. It will protect you, your loved ones. BC health officials describing this as a transition year. Unclear as to what expect for COVID-19 moving forward. Cases of the virus down from October and so is the severity, with 182 people in hospital testing positive for the virus, including 17 in intensive care. But if you're sick with COVID or the flu, the advice is to check in with 811 or a family doctor before the emergency room. Then a decision can be made if the individual needs to be seen either by their physician or potentially in the emergency room. But that first call should be should be done. The first call, the first move should not be to go to the emergency room. Pharmacies expected to be busy with people getting their shots or trying to treat some respiratory illness symptoms. The worst symptom in terms of transmissibility is a fever. Dr. Henry says if you have that or a cough or a sore throat, it may be reason to pass up attending that seasonal gathering. So if you're the one hosting or part of gatherings this holiday season, make it okay for people who aren't feeling well not to come in person. The province trying to mitigate people spreading more than just holiday cheer. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Good to see COVID trending down, but yes, still some problems. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on just how busy our hospitals are and what the province is doing about it. Keith. Yeah, our hospitals have been very crowded since the summer and the situation hasn't changed. It's basically remained static with very high numbers of people in hospital. Uh, it's one reason why the healthcare system actually added 700 more beds to the base bed uh, inventory some months ago. So about 9,929 base beds. Take a look at the numbers last week on a daily average of number of people in hospital. More beds were occupied in over the number of base beds. 10,093 beds were the average occupation rate on a daily basis. Just four 418 base beds were available province-wide on any given day. And less than 100 base beds are available in each health authority. It's a little better this week, but not much better. Health Minister Adrian Dix says it's going to get even more crowded as we go post-Christmas when people going to those gatherings come down with serious illness. Here's the minister. What we're seeing right now is that those beds are, of course, fully allocated. We also have a significant number of surge beds. In addition to that as well, another a significant number of beds which allows us to um, to respond to increased demand. The fact of the matter is that we're facing in a, a continued period in the course of a week of 10,000 patients in our public health care system. As a result, uh, as a result, we are continuing to prepare as we have been preparing to, since September for what we would expect to see a growth in, in those numbers in the first part of January, which is our absolute peak season. 
So it's sort of a good news, bad news thing. One reason why there's more people in hospital right now is we're doing more surgeries than ever before. In fact, about 700 more surgeries a week are being done now compared to just before the pandemic in 2019. And many of those people remain in hospital for a period of days with post-op situations. So that's one reason why the numbers are bigger. But the numbers expected to break the all-time record, which was set last year, which was more than almost 10,300 people in hospital. That will likely be broken the first or second week of January. That's why the breakdown from you is so valuable, Keith. Thank you. Thanks. A couple expecting their first child got a shock when their landlord found out about it. It's pretty difficult, I guess, like just to think about it. Their landlord is demanding an extra $600 a month for an additional occupant after the baby arrives. The loophole that gives landlords the right to boost the rent. Next on the News Hour. Fearless women on an ocean odyssey. Why they're rowing all the way across the Atlantic coming up. And a juicy investigation on the North Shore. Why are so many edible oranges being dumped? A better solution to food waste later. Right now, though, a Vancouver woman who is eight months pregnant says her landlord is threatening to raise the rent once her child is born. It's not the first time a landlord has taken advantage of a legal loophole. But as Cassidy Moscone reports, BC's housing minister says it has to stop. I want her to come before Christmas. Joy Maynard and her partner Anton are just days away from welcoming their first child into the world. This is her little ultrasound, cute little nose, oh my goodness. Instead of deciding names and setting up the baby's room, they're worrying about whether they'll have somewhere to sleep at night come the new year. There's a set amount in our release that spoke about new occupants and it was $600 per person. We were hoping $600 for a baby would have seemed ridiculous to everybody, but they were like, no. Eight months pregnant and facing eviction, Joy says the landlord wants another $600 when her mum comes to stay with them for a few weeks after the baby is born. The couple can't afford the increase. Their income is about to be halved when Joy goes on maternity leave. There's no assistance, no kindness, no consideration, there's nothing. It's like pretty scary given the circumstances. Scary, but legal. The fact that it's completely unregulated leaves a massive hole for or landlords should take advantage of people who are desperate for housing. The landlord at home today, but unable to come to the door. Hello. It's Cassidy from Global News. Could we speak to you about your tenants downstairs? This landlord just needs to give themselves a head shake. Condemned by the housing minister, who gave a familiar response Monday. We're going to be looking to make changes into the future. Uh, but in this instant, I, I urge the landlord to do the right thing. We are looking at changes uh, in the future to uh, address this challenge. Uh, but in this case, I certainly hope that the landlord uh, finds a way to accommodate this young family. Asking everyone to be reasonable and polite is not an answer to, you know, a systemic problem like this. But this one is the cure. If we're going to allow rent increases for additional occupants, there needs to be a cap. It need, we need to have more clarity on what an occupant is. Clarity this family doesn't have time to wait for. Cassidy Moscone, Global News. A rally is expected at the park board tonight as the first meeting since Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim announced he wanted to eliminate it gets underway. Aaron MacArthur is live with more on the controversy and the many voices now who are stepping up to support the board. Aaron.
Yeah, certainly a lot of support for the park board tonight. Sophie, there'll be a motion on the table at park board tonight. We don't know what the wording of that motion will be, but certainly it will aim to fire back at what Ken Sim proposed last week. There are plenty of former park board commissioners who say what Sim has proposed might be illegal, and certainly ABC doesn't have the mandate to do what it suggested it will do. As many as 30 former park board commissioners across all political stripes here have signed on to a letter demanding the city back off its plan. There's a petition circulating online. About a thousand people have signed on to that. But the decision now really rests elsewhere. Vancouver City Council will be debating this motion on Wednesday and, you know, that will likely pass. And then it will be up to the provincial government to amend the Vancouver Charter, a piece of provincial legislation. Former commissioners say the park board is essential to democracy and provides people without a voice a voice. Here's John Cooper, a former NPA park commissioner. A decision that was made by the mayor that's both undemocratic and, and he had no mandate to do it, and that's a big concern. And we're seeing commissioners from across the political spectrum come together because those that have served on the park board see the value of the park board, and it's direct democracy. Community centre associations, people can come. We have, uh, you know, big turnouts, and we listen to the community, and it was always my great uh, honour to be a commissioner. Now, the meeting tonight might get a little spicy. Three ABC ca uh, commissioners were, were booted out of the party and are sitting as independents, so the balance of power has shifted. So we'll see what the motion is uh, finally when it gets onto the table. We'll have the latest tonight at 11. All right, looking forward to that. Aaron, thank you. Just ahead, no justice in a hit-and-run case. He was trying to do something good. One full year after Mark Ellis was run down helping a runaway dog. His loved ones appeal for help to solve it. And witnesses wanted why Mounties are looking for these two people captured on camera. Those are still on scene to a major collision in the Stanley Park Causeway that has traffic blocked in both directions. They are currently letting traffic stuck on the bridge through, but it's total gridlock on both the North Shore and downtown Vancouver side, so definitely don't go that way. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services, and that's no accident. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Surrey RCMP and the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team are responding to a suspicious death in the city's Newton neighborhood. Police were called to a suspicious vehicle Sunday morning near 62nd Avenue and 121st Street. When they arrived, officers found a deceased person inside. The death is considered suspicious, but police haven't determined the circumstances behind the death or if criminality was a factor. Anyone with information that could assist the investigation is asked to contact IHIT or Surrey RCMP. Mounties in North Vancouver are asking two witnesses to come forward in connection to a suspicious vehicle fire. On November 20th, police say somebody lit this camper truck near the Capilano Business Park on fire. The one occupant inside was able to escape safely. Now police are sharing these CCTV videos of two witnesses they believe observed what happened and likely filmed the incident. They're sharing the video in hopes of encouraging those two witnesses to come forward. Anyone else who has information is also asked to call RCMP. Now an emotional plea from the family of a man struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver one year ago today, hoping someone out there knows something that will help solve it. 
As Catherine Urquhart reports, police have some leads, but they need more information to be able to make an arrest. In Abbotsford, a roadside memorial grows for Mark Ellis, a man known for being kind and compassionate. He was also an animal lover. One year ago, he died in a hit and run after pulling over on Lefevre Road to rescue a runaway dog. He was trying to do something good and being the caring animal lover that he is and the caring person that he is and, and it did unfortunately lead to him losing his life. Ellis was struck by this red Dodge Ram pickup, which later crashed. Two people fled the scene. So far, no one has been arrested. We have um, evidence that would lead us to suggest who they may have been yet. However, any information that is still out there in the public that has not been forwarded to us may greatly assist. The pickup is registered to an Abbotsford business. Its owner has been uncooperative with the investigation. And police say eventually the truck could be submitted for civil forfeiture. We will uh, entertain any kind of dissemination of property or civil forfeiture following that, um, following the case. For now, the priority is making an arrest, something Mark Ellis's family is anxious to see happen, as is his girlfriend. Put yourself in our shoes. If it was your family, you'd want the right thing. You'd want justice. You'd want some hope in the darkness. Anyone with information about the hit-and-run death of Mark Ellis is urged to contact Abbotsford Police. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Coming up, conflicting land claims. The cross-border tribe laying claim to thousands of square kilometers of territory in British Columbia. And Ottawa's $13 billion dental plan. Who qualifies for coverage first? Crews are still on scene to a rollover crash in the Stanley Park Causeway and traffic is still gridlocked in both directions. Continue to head over to the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge instead. Contact Kermac for expert windshield repair and replacement services while supporting Kermac Cares for Kids. Kermac is celebrating 50 years of collision and auto glass services and that's no accident. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. An indigenous tribe headquartered in Washington state is claiming rights to a lot of land on this side of the border, too, even setting up an office in B.C. The tribe is seeking influence in an area already claimed by indigenous nations in Canada, in the Okanagan region. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the government is hoping to find a diplomatic resolution. On the second floor of this office building, a U.S. indigenous group has set up shop. The sign outside officially establishing the Sinaix Confederacy's presence here. We were declared extinct in 1956, not by our choosing, right? But um, so we had to prove they weren't extinct. The process began in 2010 when a Colville member from Washington State shot a cow elk near Castlegar. He was charged for hunting without a license and without being a resident of B.C. 
In court, he argued he had a right to hunt in ancestral territory, as he was the successor of the Sinaiks. The judge ruled in his favor, declaring the tribe an aboriginal people of Canada. Now, two years later, the Sinaiq Confederacy is working towards managing the natural resources in the area and making claim to government funds. Let's work on the next steps moving forward, which there are a lot <laughs> near me. Re-establishing, you know, our government, I guess you could say. But the 40,000 square kilometers of land the tribe is claiming overlaps with other First Nations territories whose members are holding their ground. It's not without controversy because, of course, we have other indigenous peoples in Canada, the Okanagan Nation Alliance, the Tanaha, the Shrepnik, all of whom lay claim to the area that is now uh, the claimed area of the, the Sinaik. The province is now involved, meeting regularly with Colville members as they try to establish their rights. And we think that the federal government and the provincial government must, must work with all of the nations in the territory affected to come up with a resolution. Whatever is decided, it's bound to set a precedent. Other tribes are already preparing to follow suit. We've had other tribes reach out to us, some in Washington, some, you know, in other parts of the U.S. And, you know, how do we do this? How did you guys do this? Just kind of want to get into the, into the weeds about it. It's a lot of work, but good work. Kylie Stanton, Global News. An Amnesty International report says the human rights of protesters who blocked the construction of the coastal gasoline pipeline were violated during their arrests. The report focused on four police raids carried out to remove demonstrators standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. It claims the court injunction banning protests against the pipeline restricted the Wet'suwet'en nation's right to self-governance and that police arbitrarily arrested Wet'suwet'en protesters for defending their land. It argues police actions were disproportionate to the situation noting officers were armed with semi-automatic sniper rifles and some protesters reportedly were assaulted during arrests. Amnesty is now calling for an immediate halt to the pipeline's construction and use. So what emerges clearly from our report is that the intimidation, the harassment, the unlawful surveillance and the criminalization of Wet'suwet'en land defenders were part of a concerted effort to remove them from their ancestral territory in order to allow the pipeline construction to proceed. In a statement, an RCMP spokesperson says police are required by law to enforce court injunctions and that they only use the level of force necessary to ensure everyone's safety. It also argues these protests have been neither peaceful nor lawful and that the rights of everyone involved have been fully respected. The Canadian dental care plan has been officially unveiled. We're going to be opening applications in phases, starting with seniors and then people with disabilities, children under 18, and then ultimately by 2025, all eligible Canadians. This week, we're sending invitations to apply letters to seniors 87 and older. Once they are enrolled, seniors will be able to access oral health care as early as May of 2024. The plan was born out of the Liberals' supply and confidence deal with the NDP and will offer dental care benefits directly to Canadian residents who are uninsured with a household income under $90,000. It's estimated 9 million Canadians will be eligible for the phased rollout with the stipulation that the eligible participant be up to date on their tax filings. 
Once enrolled, Canadian residents will be sent a welcome package by Sun Life with a member card and start date. Just ahead, four women on one epic journey. We are going to have to learn to sleep in little chunks. The Salty Science team that's rowing across the Atlantic and the inspiration behind it. And later in sports, how a kid from Prince George who became a lawyer ended up as a Stanley Cup winning hockey coach. So sometimes it pays to have your head in the clouds, or at least yeah. above the clouds. Yeah, look at that. That's the only <laughs> way you'll find some sunshine around here. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit patchy through the latter part of the day today, but it certainly came and went, that's for sure. This is a shot from looking out from the Cypress lookout. Thank you to Dickens, yeah, for that. Uh, that was from this morning. You can expect it again tomorrow morning, and we will see some cloud cover, but it will be a little bit tough to break out of the fog at times, but just in some areas across the lower mainland, not all areas. So expect some sunshine tomorrow. I want to quickly take a look back at the drought portal. This is the latest um, uh, report that they put out, still incredibly drying through the north eastern portion. We'll be watching that in the springtime, but I just wanted to highlight that the south coast has actually gotten worse. So the last two weeks in November, we had very little moisture, and when we look at the numbers uh, for the November month at YVR, we were well below. Normally, November's our wettest month of the year, and we certainly didn't reach that. The good news is, since that latest update from the drought portal, we've now headed into the, the first two weeks of December with similar numbers. So in the first two weeks of December, we reported as much rainfall that we did the entire month of November. So hopefully that will impact the south coast. But again, we're still really watching that um, south, sorry, northeastern corner of the province. So patchy fog expected overnight and in through the interior regions as well. North coast will see periods of rain and windy conditions. It gusts up to 110 kilometers an hour as that system drives across. So you can see that here. Most inland regions, though, the biggest concern will be patchy fog and valley cloud for you. For the south coast, again, we'll see fog and a little bit of cloud coverage tomorrow but certainly a dry day it's not until Wednesday that we're expecting periods of rain and it's likely not until later in the day and at this point if you're wondering we don't have any rain or sorry I should say snow in the forecast uh, not as far as we can see at this point but I did think I would take you back to what we saw on Saturday this is in Crescent Beach a friend of mine Rona Tepper shared this with us and yes uh, some areas did get a lot on Saturday back to you too Snows in Crescent Beach? What? Uh, what? I, I mm -hmm. was driving around on the weekend, too, and you'd see vehicles that were covered in snow, mm -hmm. and we got none mm -hmm. in our neighborhood. It was like, where were you driving? We even had it yeah. downtown, if you can believe it. Yeah, a little amazing. Bit, a little bit. Thanks, Christy. All right, a group of four female marine scientists are taking on the challenge of a lifetime, hoping to row across the Atlantic. As long as the weather cooperates, the Salty Science team is set to cast off from the Canary Islands on Wednesday. In teams of two, they'll be rowing their 28-foot rowboat more than 5,000 kilometers in two-hour shifts. Two members of that all-female crew are representing B.C., SFU professor Isabel Cote and UBC master's student Lauren Shea. It's just a really long time to be offshore on this sort of a watch schedule and the sleep deprivation can be really challenging and can play with your mind in weird ways and it just makes everything a lot harder when everyone is really tired all the time. Um, so I think it's just pushing pushing through all of those all those challenges together. 
The team is hoping to raise $500,000 for a number of marine science and conservation organizations. Two hours of rowing, two hours of sleep, two hours of rowing, repeat, repeat, repeat for days on end. It's amazing. I always wonder when people do these things. It's impressive, but at some point halfway across the Atlantic, do you think, man, this is not a very good idea? Yeah. <laughs> that is going to occur to them. Flown, but <laughs> it's good exercise. It is. Right. Uh, okay, so Tampa Bay coach John Cooper is in town with the Lightning, and he, of course, is a two-time Stanley Cup champion who loves coming to play the Canucks because he grew up in Prince George and still has family in B.C. Pretty cool to be a part of it, and it's pretty cool to surround yourself with the family that get to watch you. Well, I guess watch me stand there, but it's uh... that's true. It's not really like watching a player. He has been standing behind the Lightning bench since 2013, and he's never had a losing record. Quite a talent. Also coming up. Well, we were eating them, and they were delightful. The woman fighting back against the bitter reality of food waste after spotting thousands of discarded oranges. Good test coming up for the Canucks. It's always fun when Tampa Bay is in town, although I think there's a bit of a flu bug going through the Lightning dressing room right now. Anyway, tomorrow they will be at Rogers Arena with their head coach, John Cooper. And for Cooper, this is a homecoming, as we mentioned, because he was born and raised in Prince George before heading off on what really is an amazing journey that led him to the Tampa Bay Lightning and two Stanley Cup championships. He is one of the best coaches in the NHL, and oddly enough, he has never won Coach of the Year. Even the year Tampa won 62 regular season games, he was just the runner-up for the Jack Adams Award. But he does have the big trophy in his collection and a lot of great memories and great stories on how he got to where he is today. The path to professional sports is non-linear, and John Cooper's annual trip to Vancouver is a full-circle reminder. It's pretty cool to be a part of it, and it's pretty cool to surround yourself with the family that get to watch it. Well, I guess watch me stand there, but it's uh... it's a little different from watching him skate around the rinks in Prince George, where he was born and raised and fell in love with the game. It's the passion for hockey and it's growing up in this country and it's just in your blood and you may leave it for some time. But, uh, you know, I'm a big believer is you know, try and find something that you're good at and match it with your passion. And it turned out for me to be a hockey coach. Not just any hockey coach, he is the longest tenured coach in the NHL. And through 10 seasons with the Tampa Bay Lightning, he's won two Stanley Cups and never had a losing season. Not bad for someone who never played in the NHL, or maybe it's what has made him such a great coach. Instead of pursuing a playing career, he studied business at Hofstra, then law at Thomas M. Cooley Law School in Lansing, Michigan. It, it taught me how to get up in front of people. And I, I think that's a big it's, it's a, probably an underheralded craft that you have to have. Um, I always akin it to like speaking to a jury. And you got to convince them of your side of the argument. You kind of have to do that in, in coaching as well. You know, he's a confident uh, person, and, and that's because he's worked at it. So, I mean, he's won everywhere he's, he's gone. I don't, I don't think that's a coincidence. His first coaching gig was with Lansing Catholic High School, where he won the regional hockey championship. He then won titles in the NAHL, USHL, and then the Calder Cup with the Norfolk Admirals, Tampa's AHL affiliate at the time, where he was also named Coach of the Year. One day you're going to look back and, and, and say, wow, you know, that's pretty cool what was, has been accomplished. But I think if you do that now, it's an injustice to yourself and your team. 
he just knows which buttons to push for for guys and can just bring a, a team together so um, I think that's been a strength of our team over the years it's just been the camaraderie we've had in this room and um, I think that starts with with him well, John Tavares, of course, started his career and played a lot of years on Long Island with the Islanders. And tonight, in front of his old fans who now boo him, he reached 1,000 points. His 999th point was that goal right there. Then he gets an odd assist on a goal that tied the score 3-3 with seven seconds left. But that is an assist for Tavares, although Bo Horvat scored the winning goal in overtime and the Islanders got the full two points. Well, we are a long way from the next BC Lions season, but head coach and co-GM Rick Campbell is getting an early start by announcing that his entire coaching staff will be back for the 2024 season. And his defensive coordinator, Ryan Phillips, has been given a promotion to assistant head coach. He does a great job and he's, he's good at, uh, he's not one of those guys that just has a focus. You know, his main focus obviously is the defense and specifically the defensive backs, but He's more of a guy that can uh, reach out to the whole team and, and have uh, communication, whether that's with the receivers or the O-line or whatever it is. So, um, you know, good on him for doing that. I have beside me the original Vancouver Whitecaps logo. Why? Because we need to wish the Whitecaps a hafty, happy 50th birthday. Today, in 1973, the Whitecaps were born. Original owner and team president Herb Capozzi, along with his general manager Danny Veach, as you will see in this clip, had the same feeling towards growing Canadian soccer players that the Whitecaps still have to this day. I've always been involved with the development of Canadian talent in Canadian sports. And when we discussed this, I said, look, if you agree, we're going to use Canadian players wherever possible. I've always believed that given an equal opportunity, Canadians can compete with the best in the world. So we're going to bring in some mature pros from other areas, but our basic team alignment is going to be Canadian in content. There's the old mayor, Mark Art Phillips, and uh, you saw Bob Leonard mm -hmm. with the sliding tackle. One of the highlights of his career, I might add. <laughs> of many, one of many. Thanks, Squire. Up next, one person's trash is another's tasty treat. The food waste dilemma on display at a local dump. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a look at uh, what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, some new Westminster residents are demanding safety upgrades to the area where a woman was struck and killed yesterday. Local state traffic has increased near 8th and Princess Streets. And in addition to the fatal incident, there have been numerous other crashes and close calls in recent years. They say a lit pedestrian controlled crosswalk is long overdue there. We'll hear from them at 11. Plus the latest on tonight's park board meeting, the first one since the mayor announced his intention to abolish the board. Chris? Could be a wild one. Thank you, Jordan. Truckloads of mandarin oranges have been dumped at a North Vancouver Waste Center, focusing the spotlight on food waste. As Janet Brown tells us, while the image of thousands of ripe oranges has stirred up local outrage, the incident is part of a much bigger problem. Every day, we often waste good food, throwing it out because we buy too much, cook too much, or don't store it correctly. There is food waste from homes, and then there is food waste from businesses. 
Here at the North Shore Recycling and Waste Center, truckloads of oranges have been dumped. But many say there must be better ways to dispose of food, especially if it's still edible. We were eating them and they were delightful, so they were fine. Sonia Reve could not believe her eyes when she saw the dumped oranges. If you have anybody in your country that, that can't feed themselves, it should be illegal to throw away any kind of food that's nutritious. Fresh Direct Produce in Vancouver says they sent the oranges to the North Shore Waste Centre because they did not meet the standards required for distribution after being carefully inspected by staff. Metro Vancouver says it is aware of large quantities of fruit being dropped off at the North Shore Recycling and Waste Centre, saying while it is unfortunate to see food going to waste, there are no rules against accepting edible items. Staff, they say, are working to contact the company responsible. By the end of 2023, we'll be looking to redirect over 1.2 million pounds of food. Vancouver Food Runners was formed in 2020, a charity that redirects food from 170 businesses to about 135 nonprofits, keeping it out of landfills. When the food business contacts us, we're able to match it to a nonprofit partner based on their needs. And then once that match is made, it goes onto the app. And then at that point, all of our volunteers registered on the app will get a notification that it's available. According to the National Zero Waste Council, 63% of food Canadians throw away could have been eaten. And for the entire country, that amounts to almost 2.3 million tons of edible food that is wasted every year. We are all likely throwing out more food every day than we realize, food that at one point could have been eaten. Janet Brown. Global News. 63%. That's I know. huge. I know. Wow. I know. It's and a I lot mean, of waste. And what I don't eat, I give to Chris. You know what? We actually did that today. That's how I had my lunch. I just <laughs> That's finished why you beef. got so big and tall. <laughs> right? Well, you finished yeah. everybody else's. Always <laughs> clean it up. I do it at home, too. It's coming Thank up you. for dinner. Thank you. Uh, last word on weather before we go. Sure. So um, we are expecting fog tomorrow morning in chilly conditions. We'll see some cloud cover, but hopefully you'll catch a bright spot or two. Awesome. Thanks very much, Christy. And thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, all.